Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard and today is Saturday, February 4th, 2023. It's been 3,265 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 346 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Report is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Commands North, South, and East of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission, to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with our assessment of the current status of the war. First, we assess that the power struggle between military leaders aligned with Russian Minister of Defense Sergei Shoigu versus those aligned with private military company or PMC Wagner Group head Yevgeny Prigozhin has escalated due to statements by state Duma deputies. We maintain that the political distraction benefits Russian President Vladimir Putin the most. Second, We maintain there is an increased probability that Ukrainian forces will launch a significant military operation within the next 48 hours due to President Volodymyr Zelensky holding a closed-door meeting of the Supreme Commander-in-Chief with a subset of military intelligence and security leaders on February 2nd and statements by several prominent Russian mill bloggers. Third, we maintain that the battle for the control of Bakhmut has reached a critical phase with the addition of Russian forces to the Axis and the ongoing attempt to create a technical encirclement. Fourth, we concur with recent assessments by other analysts that it is highly likely the Russian Federation will launch a new offensive before February 24th to try and deliver a tactical victory before the anniversary of the wide-scale invasion of Ukraine. Fifth, We maintain that the significant increase in disinformation and misinformation from Russian sources is being directed by Chief of the General Staff of the Russian Federation Armed Forces, Valery Gerasimov, as part of his hybrid warfare doctrine. Sixth, the RAND Corporation agrees with our assessment that Ukraine holds the battlefield initiative, while we maintain the exception for the Solidar-Bakhmut axis. Seventh, we maintain that the Russian military within Ukraine remains combat ineffective, and is relying on World War II tactics that Field Marshal Georgi Zhukov would recognize to move the line of conflict. Eighth, we maintain that Russia is preparing to launch another punitive missile strike on civilians and civilian infrastructure due to the ongoing rotation of ships in the Black Sea Fleet. Ninth, we maintain that Russian forces will continue to target electrical, heating, and potable water infrastructure. Tenth, We maintain that the Russian Federation's inventory of caliber cruise missiles is critically low, based on the continued decline of launches from the Black Sea Fleet. Eleventh, 
We maintain that there is a risk of a nuclear accident caused by the de-energization of Ukrainian nuclear power plants as a result of Russian electrical infrastructure destruction. Twelfth, we maintain that stealth mobilization has started in the Russian Federation due to stop-loss orders for active-duty troops deployed in Ukraine and mobilization requests from the Kremlin in the occupied territories. And finally, we maintain that the threat of Russian forces in Belarus crossing into Ukraine as part of an offensive operation is negligible, despite contrary claims from Ukrainian and Polish officials. Let's get some regional updates, starting with the Donbass region in Luhansk. Luhansk Oblast Administrative and Military Governor Serhii Haidai reported increasing Russian attacks on February 3rd, with Russian troops launching more organized offensive operations from Svatova to Dibrova. In the Svatova operational direction, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, or GSAFU, and the Russian Ministry of Defense, or MOD, reported that Ukrainian troop positions in Novoselivsk were shelled. A geolocated video west of Krivoshivka showed a small cache of Russian 125mm tank ammunition destroyed by a drone-dropped IED. It's unclear if the site was abandoned, as the ammo dump looks more like a garbage dump, even by Russian Mobik standards. Watch the video, you'll know what we mean. As with most of the photos and videos we reference on the podcast, we do link to it in our full situation report on Patreon. We made a small adjustment to the map, moving the line of conflict west based on the improved intelligence. Russian forces attacked in the direction of Stelmachivka and were unable to move the line of conflict. The Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, Joint Center for Coordination and Control, or JCCC, reported that a clothing factory and garage were hit by three rockets fired by HIMARS, destroying both facilities. They did not provide information on casualties. In the Kremina operational direction, mercenaries with Wargonzo reported continued fighting in Ploshanka and Chervonopopivka, while the GSAFU and Russian MOD reported Russian forces attempted to advance on Nevsky. A Ukrainian source reported Russia moved back into Dibrova and pushed Ukrainian forces further southwest, and the Russian MOD reported continued fighting in the Serebriansky woods south of Kremina. There were a lot of reports on Ukrainian social media channels of a Russian offensive out of Kremina that had pushed west toward Torske, declaring a large offensive had been launched. Some assessment here. On January 28th, we moved the line of conflict west of Kremina based on a geolocated video of a Russian BMPT Terminator firing at Ukrainian positions. We made another small change on January 29th after a geolocated video showed a Ukrainian infantry fighting vehicle, or IFV, 200 meters south of where the Terminator was previously located. In our assessment, two opposing armored vehicles in the same area within 24 hours was a solid proof point of where the line of conflict was located. We believe that Russian forces have launched their predicted large offensive in Luhansk, but it doesn't appear to be the strike of an iron fist that many expected. Russian military leaders appear to be moving away from waves of squads and platoons of light infantry to overwhelm Ukrainian defenses to IFVs and armored personnel carriers, or APCs, with dismounts. One of the reasons for this change is that many units of the Russian 1st and 2nd Army Corps, Chechen Akhmat, 
and PMC Wagner penal units are combat destroyed. The Kremlin has been averse to using regular Russian troops in the hardest advances, preferring to use proxy forces. The reduced availability of expendable personnel, artillery supply issues, and the change in leadership over the Russian forces in Ukraine have contributed to the shift in tactics. And this would explain why Russia didn't take the usual steps to set conditions to support a larger offensive. To use an analogy, many expected a massive volcanic eruption with fast-flowing lava. Instead, lava is slowly advancing from a calmer but still volcano volcano. The GSAFU reported that Ukrainian troops repelled attacks on Bilohorivka, the one in Luhansk, with Wargonzo reporting the same. Mercenaries with Rybar repeated their claim that Bilohorivka had been captured, which Luhansk Governor Haidai said does, quote, not align with reality, end quote. Our favorite FSB colonel, convicted war criminal, Kremlin pariah, PMC Wagner target, and failed Mobik, Igor Girkin Strelkov, said, hold my vodka and pickles and watch this. In a Telegram post, he suggested that there may be confusion in the information space, with Ukrainian troops withdrawing from an area that the locals call, quote, Lower Bilohorivka. Assessment here. When you have a wide range of opinions and an absence of data, the answer usually lies in the middle. Without any pictures or videos to support any claim, Strelkov's explanation is the best. Additionally, Governor Haidai has been a reliable source of information. We did not adjust the map because we already have this so-called Lower Bilohorivka in the Gray Zone, and there is little support for the claim that Ukrainian forces withdrew from the entire settlement. In the Stadobilsk operational area, the LNR-JCCC falsely claimed that Ukrainian forces attacked Bulivinivka with two rockets fired by HIMARS. The settlement is on the outer edge of the M30-M31 rockets range and would have required Ukrainian forces to move a launcher to the line of conflict during an ongoing Russian attack. Besides that, the damage, craters, and low accuracy are inconsistent with a HIMARS strike. Russian troops in the Skitnukrainsky district of Luhansk violated operational security, called OPSEC, sharing a detailed video of a Russian repair base servicing artillery and main battle tanks, or MBTs, including a metal building used as a garage and machine room. They never learn. They just... Why aren't they learning? Occupation administrators in occupied Luhansk turned off mobile internet access to prevent reports about Russian troop movements and losses from being shared. However, Russian ERA secure communication systems require 3G or 4G data access to function, and Russian troops at the company level and below lack secure communications equipment and rely on their personal phones to share intelligence and operate consumer drones. The Russian MOD has repeatedly made this mistake during offensive operations, causing friendly fire incidents, losing senior officers because they had to go to the front to communicate with troops, and having troops without access to real-time intelligence blunder into Ukrainian lines. Why are they not learning? In northeast Donetsk, in the Siversk operational area, Russian forces made another attempt to advance on Verknokamyanskia without success. 
Fighting continued east of Spirna, with no change in the situation. Colonel General Ramzan Kadyrov claimed that Ahmad, with the support of the Second Army Corps of the LNR, captured Vesele. He shared a graphic video, which is not suitable for work and some may find disturbing, of a single trench that did not match the weather, ground conditions, or terrain around the settlement. The dead, allegedly Ukrainian soldiers did not have the green armbands that Ukraine swapped to last month, and there was at least one SSH-68 Soviet-era steel helmet in the video. In our assessment, the so-called proof was recorded in the late fall based on weather conditions, can't be geolocated but is not Vesele, and could be staged. Although Kadyrov's claim made it to the homepage of TASS, it was thoroughly ignored by most Russian mill bloggers, PMC Wagner, and the Russian MOD. In the Solidar operational area, a geolocated video showed that the composite forces of PMC Wagner and Russia had crossed the T-513 highway west of Krasnopolivka and reached the first ridge southwest of Vasyukivka. Ukrainian forces maintained their defensive lines at Mykolaivka and Rozdolivka, where fighting was described as intense. Russian forces continued their attempts to advance on Krasnohora from Blachodatne without success. We readjusted the map based on a geolocated video that shows Russian forces are closer to Krasnohora than we assessed yesterday. In the Bakhmut operational area, fighting continued on the city's northern, northeastern, eastern, and southern edges. Russian forces continued to push toward Paraskovivka, while further south, fighting around the meatpacking plant in Bakhmut continued. A geolocated video showed that Russian forces had made marginal gains west of the recycling sorting plant, and based on the new intelligence, we updated the map. Another geolocated video recorded in late January showed that Ukrainian forces are further south and east in Opitne, about four blocks north of the kindergarten. Based on this new intelligence, we made a small adjustment to the map. In the Kostyantanivka operational direction, Russian sources claimed that additional advances were made toward Ivanivsky without any evidence. The GSAFU did not report holding a defense in the area of Klishivka, which would support Russian claims that the fighting has moved further west. A Russian attempt to cross the Seversky Donetsk Donbass Canal at Kurdyumivka was unsuccessful. The mayor of Slovyansk is urging residents who started to return after the liberation of Izum and Liman to leave the city. Ukrainian officials issued a mandatory evacuation order for all civilians in the Donetsk Oblast in August. In southwest Donetsk, in the Toretsk, New York operational area, Rybar reported that Russian forces attempted to advance toward Pivnichne. The Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, People's Militia, released a graphic video showing Ukrainian forces being shelled in the center of Novobakhmutivka, confirming our previous assessment that Ukrainian forces control most, if not all, of the settlement. Some people may find the video disturbing. In the Avdiivka operational area, only light positional fighting occurred in Vodyana, and a Russian 1st Army Corps attempt to advance on the Ukrainian firebase at Nevelsky with tanks unsupported by infantry ended with new entries in the Oryx database documenting destroyed Russian tanks. 
Insurgency in Mariupol reported that the Russian garrison in and around the city swelled by 10 to 15,000 more troops over the last seven days, with up to 30,000 Russian soldiers stationed in the Mariupol rayon. The new troops include 2 to 3,000 Kadyrovites. Mass filtration was reported throughout the settlements north of the city, with door-to-door inspections conducted by the FSB searching documents and electronic devices for everyone, including children. Checkpoints were introduced in the city again, where passports and paperwork are being inspected. At the Novoazovsk-Maximov border crossing between the DNR and Russia, you know which Russia, westbound traffic into occupied Ukraine was backed up for hours. Southeast of Donetsk, the Uspenka-Avila-Uspenka border crossing was also backed up for hours in both directions. In our assessment, the traffic delays were caused by a combination of the Kerch Strait Bridge being closed at the start of the week, weather suspending the Kerch Strait Ferry on two days, weather-related traffic accidents on February 2nd, and the sharp increase in military traffic. Complaints about price gouging for groceries continued in the occupied regions of Donetsk. In a region where the average annual salary is $2,500 a year, zucchini sells for $2.76 a pound and tomatoes for $2.31 a pound. Vladimir Pashkov, the first deputy of the so-called DNR, said that grocery prices would be state-regulated soon, and local officials were, quote, working on the mechanisms of legal regulation of this issue. End quote. Moving on to Zaporizhia. In the Velika Novosilka operational area, the Russian MOD reported fighting in the area of the hamlet of Levadne on the Zaporizhia Donetsk administrative border. In the Juliapola operational area, the Russian MOD claimed Russian troops attacked Marfupil. A geolocated video showed a Russian ammunition depot in Stepanivka, southeast of Marfupil, destroyed by Ukrainian artillery. In the Orihiv operational area, the Russian MOD reported positional fighting in the area of Luhivske. Ivan Fedorov, the exiled mayor of Melitsopol, reported that up to 1,500 mercenaries with PMC Wagner had been moved to Mikhailivka. The situation at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant remains unchanged. In the Black Sea, Crimea, Mykolaiv, and Odessa region, Operational Command South, or OCS, reported the Black Sea fleet had nine ships on patrol this morning, with no missile carriers among them, with the number dropping to seven at nightfall. We maintain our assessment that the rotation back to port of warships that can launch caliber cruise missiles indicates that Russia is preparing for another wave of missile strikes. Just days after Russian President Vladimir Putin signed decrees enabling the yellow terror alert status to be implemented indefinitely and the search of vehicles without cause, the yellow terror alert status was issued to all regions in Russian-occupied Crimea. Probably no one saw this coming, and it was a shock to everyone. Just kidding. Obviously, we all knew this would happen. In Odessa, the severely damaged Usatovo electrical substation exploded, causing a large fire. DTEK officials described the incident as an accident and the second one to re-damage electrical infrastructure in the Odessa rayon in 24 hours. Electrical power, water, and internet service were knocked out over a large area at the time of recording. In Mykolaiv, 
Ochakiv was attacked with S-300 anti-aircraft missiles used for a ground attack, and Kutsurub was heavily shelled from the Kinburn Spit. In Ochakiv, homes and farms were damaged, but there were no casualties. In western and central Ukraine, in Kherson, Russian and Ukrainian forces continued mutual shelling across the Dnipro River. Russian forces executed 47 fire missions on Free Ukraine, targeting the city of Kherson six times, killing one and wounding three. The shelling of Kherson targeted residential and business areas, with a very graphic picture showing a man killed during one of the attacks lying in a parking lot. East of the Dnipro, Russian-occupied Nova Kochovka was shelled, destroying warehouses, and west of Pishane, a second Russian Arctic Tor M2D2 anti-aircraft missile system was destroyed by drone-directed Ukrainian artillery. In north and northeast Ukraine, the border areas of Cherniv were hit with over 50 120mm mortars, including the villages of Sinkivka and Yanzhulivka. There were no injuries reported. On the Russian front, Bilbarod Federal District Governor Vyacheslav Gladkov said that the armed forces of Ukraine fired at the Borisovsky district, striking the fuel storage depot at Borisovska, sparking a massive fire. One video showed three columns of flames, indicating at least three storage tanks with highly volatile fuels were ablaze. The burning fuel spread the fire to an adjacent steel fabrication plant, which makes bridge trusses and other components. Propagandists with Ridovka reported the factory might be a site where replacement parts for the Kerch Strait Bridge are being produced, which we doubt due to geography. If Ridovka's claim is true, components being produced would be for the railroad bridge, as structural repairs on the highway side were completed on January 30, 2023. At the time of recording, both sites were still on fire. In Moscow, someone thought it would be a good idea to hide the Pantsir S-1 anti-aircraft system that's on the Russian Ministry of Defense roof. I don't think they thought it through, though. Because they used woodland camouflage netting (laughs) on a light-colored stone building. Do they think that Ukrainian intelligence looking at the satellite images are like, oh, what a lovely mossy outcropping on top of the Russian Ministry of Defense roof? In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you are sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead to the next segment. Timestamps are in the description. Russia and Ukraine conducted another prisoner of war exchange, 116 Ukrainians for 63 Russians. There were 114 soldiers and two officers, and the Russians returned the bodies of foreign humanitarian aid volunteers Christopher Perry and Andrew Bagshaw. Also returned was the body of Yevhen Kulik, a Ukrainian soldier who served in the French Foreign Legion, who came back to defend Ukraine and was killed in combat. The United Arab Emirates brokered the exchange. In economic news, the ruble ended the week down, with an exchange rate of 71 for one U.S. dollar, due to further demand destruction expected next week. Western oil prices closed down, with WTI crude falling to $73 a barrel and Brent dropping to $80. 
Russian Ural's crude dropped to an official price of $53 a barrel, with a new price cap of $45 taking effect tomorrow. United States wholesale Arbob gasoline on the spot market dropped to $2.32 a gallon, or $0.61 cents a liter. Dutch TTF natural gas futures end the week up, with March 2023 rising to €59 Euros per megawatt hour and April 2023 at €60. Euros. Chicago SRW wheat futures had a volatile session, trading between $7.57 and $7.72 a bushel before ending the week at $7.69 for May 2023 delivery. And that's what we know. Join me again on Monday for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.